Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for the group discussion today. And as usual, I'm joined by Dr. Nigam Aurora. Hello, everybody. And we are also joined by Dr. Sarah Jane Ward, our resident professor and expert in basic clinical research. Hey, everybody. And also joining us back from somewhere cool and doing all sorts of GMP compliance assessments, David Valencourt. Hey, everybody. And joining us for the first time, longtime cannabis advocate and policy expert, Sabrina Fendrick. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. So listener, for if you're not familiar with her work, she is the Chief Public Affairs Officer at Berkeley Patients Group and is here today celebrating her sixth anniversary at Berkeley Patients Group. Yay! Mm. <laughs> um, so listener, we have a great show for you today. We're actually at the end of the episode going to introduce a new game called Guess That Ethical Quandary, where we're going to explore uh, different ethical issues in sort of a gamification style that affect the cannabis and psychedelic space. Uh, for our popular science or news section, we're gonna discuss the FDA's CBD announcement. We'll discuss an article about how tripping on psychedelics can help us reimagine capitalism, what makes a good company, what makes a bad company in this emerging space. And we'll also, and that section with one of my favorite topics, which is synthetic versus natural chemicals. Uh, for rapid fire science, we'll discuss a recent article on uh, cooking with cannabis and also an article about psychedelics as a novel approach to treat autoimmune disorders. And again, we will be ending with a game, so hang in there, listener. And we'll start in about 30 seconds. Enjoy the music while we sharpen our pencils with this brief message. And now it is time for us to peruse and discuss some news and popular articles. This is the non-peer-reviewed portion of the show, and away we go. So the FDA has recently posted an article, Better Data for a Better Understanding of the Use and Safety Profile of Cannabidiol Products. Now, this has been applauded by some, and you'll find some articles saying, oh, this is just your typical desk-clearing uh, activities when there's a new administration or things like that. This is like the end of the year cleaning the closet uh, sort of announcement. Uh, but it seems more than that to me. So uh, what I'd like to ask, you know, Sabrina, is some of your thoughts on this, you know, FDA announcement. You know, it seems like the FDA is really stressing wanting to know more about adverse events, wanting better research, wanting to clarify risk to consumers who are buying these products online and not through approved sources. Um, you know, as someone who works in, in, you know, specializes kind of policy and government affairs, I, I, we'd love to hear your, you know, initial thoughts on this announcement. Well, I am always a proponent of research and I certainly am, uh, I think we need to start looking away from, you know, the negative effects and, and also look at the positive effects. I do understand the importance of um, uh, negative health impacts and how 
uh, different chemicals and compounds uh, uh, interact with each other and interact with the body. Um, I'm concerned that a lot of this is based on uh, miseducation or uh, you know a certain baseline of understanding that's not really foundational to a objective research effort. I think it mm. sounds like they're trying to get there. Um, and I think coming at it with skepticism is good and is is certainly very healthy. Um, yeah, you know, so if I would want to ask, you know, one of the specific things, and maybe because, you know, you have your finger a little more on the pulse, like working with one of the oldest dispensaries in the United States, so oldest licensed legal cannabis operations, they talk about rates of CBD use and the rates of specific CBD products, you know, are poorly understood. Now, I'm not asking if the information is publicly available, but do you think there are organizations that have some of this data to help answer these questions about, you know, rates of CBD use, or, or I don't know if there's anything you could share there? Um, well, in terms of rates of CBD, it's rising, certainly. Um, and it is, it's rising among, uh, you know, elderly populations and women. And it's sort of, um, it's an outgrowth or, or a parallel industry to THC, but not as D. I mean, they've sort of uh, placed themselves as the non-THC cannabis. So all the benefits of cannabis without the psychoactiveness or the stigma. And, you know, that is, not true uh, for various reasons that I'm sure you've already discussed. Um, <laughs> Every episode, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that it is the, you know, it what always seems to it, it seems to come back to is sort of the the marketing of it and the the, mm. the information that's being disseminated into the public and and not necessarily or not necessarily challenge except although the FDA is starting to do that and and they're starting to send their you know letters additional letters to different companies that are mislabeling or having false health claims and I think that is very um, important you know the public education component is more important than anything else in my opinion I think at least making sure people know the risks that they are taking when consuming a certain product and what has gone through quality control testing and what hasn't and um, you know where they're coming from, how they're licensed, how they're imported, how they're um, you know extracted and manufactured, all of those things are, people should know that we don't know. Um, <laughs> And we're yeah. figuring it out. And it's sort of the way that we do it in California with cannabis is generally, you know, this is, these are new. There's obviously tons of anecdotal evidence. There's some clinical evidence that there are benefits, but you're sort of generally, we're doing as much as we can to implement quality control. And the risk is kind of, up, it's at your own risk, if you will, but there's sort of a, a lower uh, scale of negative impacts that have been found through consumption of those products. Yeah, excellent. I, I love so many of the points you made, especially about, you know, how can people get the benefit from this while reducing risk? And that's a very common theme uh, throughout the show. And so, you know, Sarah, I'd love to hear you follow up on Sabrina's stuff, but I'm also interested in this thing that the FDA talks about, real world data. You know, as someone who gathers a lot of data and publishes a lot of data, um, Maybe you could talk about what does that mean? Does that mean like standing outside a dispensary with a survey like form and checking boxes as people are using products or or accessing products? But um, I, yeah, what what are you share us your 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 uh, thoughts on this uh, announcement from the FDA? 
Yeah, so as usual, I have a, a million thoughts and I'll try to <laughs> only share a few of them. Um, yeah, I mean, is my data real world data? I don't I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think, you know, to start, I would say, I think that this article and a lot of these conversations are sort of like mixing two different things. Like, are the are the CBD products out there safe and effective? And another question that could be quite different is, is CBD safe and effective? Um, and I think the first one is much more difficult to study because this is such a, you know, ubiquitous thing, a, a CBD product, right? There can be so many different things. I think it's a little bit simpler to address, and I think Dr. Han was talking about this a bit in the article, you know, okay, we need more research on CBD and these other cannabis constituents, which is easier for me to wrap my head around. Um, and, you know, and he mentions we need more preclinical work, which, you know, sounds great to me. We need more clinical work, but always the problem has been who's going to fund that work. And, and I'll come back to this when we talk yeah. about the next article about capitalism. Um, you know, but, and, and going back to Sabrina's point about needing more efficacy studies, um, you know, the Epidiolex clinical trials were such, uh, you know, just massively important to the CBD community because you finally get a wide scale set of clinical studies on the effectiveness for a specific disorder. And through that, we get safety information. And so just with CBD alone, it's shocking to me still how far behind we are with all of these other indications. You know, my research focuses on neuropathic pain. Other people are focusing on anxiety. There's schizophrenia, there's Alzheimer's. And we are so slow to be gathering these data. And one of the major hurdles, I know a lot of people think it's a regulatory hurdle, but it's really a financial hurdle. And I think the, the people that the FDA needs to really be talking to are the NIH. Uh, you know, it's, it's really hard to get a grant funded through the NIH to study whether CBD is safe and effective. And the people reviewing these grants that sit on these study sections are so focused on very mechanistic, basic science kinds of things that if I just write a grant that says, we need to know if CBD is good for this and is safe for that, that's typically not what the NIH or the people reviewing NIH grants are tuned into. So we need specialized funding announcements out of the NIH that meet what the FDA is saying they need. And we, you know, we're lined up in a really long queue to, to do that research if we can get the funding. And again, that's separate from the issue of the safety and effectiveness of the products, which I won't speak to. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. So we have time for maybe one or two more comments before we move on to our, our next story. Um, but, but David, I think I wanna talk to you about this, although I'll know soon if I, I'll regret asking you about this, but, um, you know, one of the interesting things about this was there's two phases to the, this FDA market study they're proposing, which is first phase, they're going to get like 200 samples. The next phase, one to 3,000 samples. And I actually threw my hat in the ring with the team in, in November and had a meeting with 
you know, the Abernathy's team and discuss like, hey, like we've studied lots of cannabis products. Let us do it. Sadly, they, they went with yet an undisclosed group. But for companies in the space that produce products, if I heard the FDA was going to go around and get as many as 3000 products from different sources and test them and look at their labeling and safety, I would be pretty nervous, uh, especially if I wasn't following GMP stuff. So um, let's just say you're a company out there. Do you still have time to standardize your products before the FDA picks them up? Uh, what what would you how, how would you communicate this to some of your clients who are either GMPers or looking at getting into the GMP process? I like the direction you 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 steered me, Jahan, because I had all these other thoughts. Um, but that said, this is this is critical, right? And that that's a point that. If folks that are producing CBD and, you know, you drive down, you see it at 7-Eleven, you see it at Walgreens, you can see it almost everywhere. Um, those products have no oversight today, right? Because of all the issues, the lack of federal oversight and um, in, in quality control and mandates. So because of that, it is, it's, it's nerve wracking. And I'm personally nerve wracked because they are going to find, as they've already found their small study, that more than half the products are way off from label claims, right? Which kind of comes back to what Sabrina talked about initially, which is the label claims, whether it's intended use or the ingredients list or the, the quantity of the products in there. And, you know, part of it too, is it's not about CBD. We're not just talking about CBD isolate. We're talking about CBD extracted from a plant, which has all sorts of other, you can call, let's call them impurities or excipients that are added, right? Whether it's CBC, whether it's Delta-8, whether it's other cannabinoids, terpenes, or just other chemicals phytols, you know, alkaloids, et cetera. And what are the risks of those components? Because it's a product. It's not just CBD that we're looking at. And um, to back to your point of where do we recommend or what about the industry? Well, industry, you need to shape up. You need to get GMPs. You need to get best practices in place. Validate your processes so that when you ship that product off to whoever the storefront is buying it, if it says 300 milligrams in that bottle, you better be damn sure it's 300 milligrams plus or minus 10 or 20%. Um, and you better disclose that and be ready to, to defend that. And if you don't have that, you're doing the entire industry disservice. It's not just yourself, right? You're doing the entire industry disservice. And that's not what we want the FDA to find because they're going to show the data and it's going to call all these alarms. And we're going to get unintended consequences of really strict regulations that are just onerous. And we're going to go right back to the illicit market or somewhere we don't want to be because this product really from a risk benefit analysis, let's talk about harm reduction. And I think we're, the FDA, I would say is kind of missing the mark. And I get that it's a political situation for by and large, but the lack of oversight is, is helping feed this unintended consequence that we're, we're so That is a great point and also a great transition. Um, you know, uh, unintended consequences, uh, you know, over-regulation. So speaking about unintended consequences in the industry, we're going to go to our next article from one of my favorite publications, uh, Double Blind Magazine. And this article is by Nicole Howell, who's someone we've hoping to have on the show in the future. And she wrote an article entitled, How Tripping Can Help Us Reimagine Capitalism Ahead of Psychedelic Commercialization. Here's what the success and failures of cannabis industry can teach those in the psychedelic space about a healthy relationship to profit. You know, I always thought like greed might be a disease because it's like never enough and you have to constantly like get it. Um, but towards the end of the article, there's these, you know, 
things kind of trying to balance out uh, sort of getting enough money versus getting too much money. But one of the interesting things, and maybe Nigam, you might want to comment on this or other issues, but what I found fascinating was this idea about changing sort of the way we approach patents and patents use. And so if there's a B corporation that's focusing on reinvesting you know, profits to therapeutic research, social justice initiatives, or using proceeds to fund low cost options for consumers and you know, restricting its price gouging, that they might be able to have more access to certain patents to facilitate their business versus someone who's just trying to sell the lowest quality thing and make the most amount of money, um, sort of typical you know, approach to the market, but, you know, as, you know, someone who's familiar with the VC space, doing consulting with a lot of companies, what were some of your takeaways from this article? Well, as you mentioned, this was uh, written by a friend of the show, Nicole Howell, um, really enjoyed seeing her perspective and she makes a lot of good points. Uh, one thing that I can call out that Nicole had shared with me is that, She's been around in California in the cannabis market for a while, and a lot of these are lessons learned, and I think that we've seen. So I know a lot of people sitting here are in a similar boat, um, Jehan, you especially, uh, you know, Sabrina as well. So um, I, I, you know, I have a lot of respect for her perspective here, and, and I think it's meaningful. So yeah, the patent thing is really interesting. It's, you know, she called out some of these existing structures that are you know used in some other areas like in you know computer science this uh fair reasonable and non-discriminatory uh license and and some of these other kind of uh, general public license these mechanisms that are used to allow for someone to hold the patent but for not to necessarily inhibit others and even like small businesses and people who are you know already in the space or in legacy trying to just make it in these new legal markets to not be immediately pushed out or marginalized. So all really good stuff. I do just have this concern though, that the fact that a small, and I actually hate what I'm about to say, but the fact that a small segment of thoughtful people who saw this before, who lived it with cannabis and are now seeing it again, are trying to speak up about it, are trying to make positive change. It's really great, but I'm just, I'm concerned if it's how that's going to hold up against big business and, you know, billion dollar unicorns on the Canadian stock exchange for psychedelics already. And, you know, like we've seen stuff with Compass and USONA that we reviewed, you know, a few episodes ago. It's just, man, it, it's it's going to be really interesting to see um and, and i could ramble all day but i guess i'll just pause there i'm curious what other people think uh david what do you think you have a response to to nigam's thoughts there are you are you really worried about these unicorns trampling over everything or you know are they just kind of mythical fictitious beasts that, that may never affect the industry um ah uh, you know i I worry, let me, let me try to answer it this way. First, I'm reminded of my first English course in my liberal arts college where, you know, it was a utopian dystopian course curriculum. And I worry, I, first off, let me just say, I really love the double blind magazine um, articles that you guys find. I love their kind of the depth of their content that they go into. And I, I think there's a lot of good points in there, everything from you mentioned the B Corp and the, 
you know, patent observations, but I'm worried that we live in a capitalistic society and um, I'm worried that it's not pragmatic and I'm worried that it's just not going to get adopted and that these are great ideas, but I think the money is already, I think it's already here and we're just not even, you know, it's just already here. And I don't want to say it's too late. It's never too late. I don't want to be the one that says, sorry, nope, too late, done. But I think we need to have a more discreet call to action if we're going to be able to make this a reality because folks are waiting on the heels. And as long as there's there's money and potential for profits. Yeah, you know, good points, uh, uh, David. You know, that is the concern. Like, while it is in its infancy, it's still you know, the, the psychedelic industry is still here and screaming and growing at a rapid rate. Um, but maybe there will be some big players that can alter, you know, our subconscious drives in the market, <laughs> as to paraphrase the author. Um, you know, Sabrina, I feel like this article, you know, intersects a lot with, you know, your day-to-day, -day, you know, activities in this space. So, um, I think we're all interested to hear about your response uh, to you know Nigam David's comments uh, into the article. Oh sure, yeah, no, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this recently, just because um, you know cannabis was a really good start to, in trying to rethink what um, a responsible industry can look like, and then eventually what an, a, a sustainable, responsible economy can become. And um, I heard this really awesome podcast on Freakonomics about um, uh, don't, what's called donut economics. And it, it basically is, it acknowledges that endless growth is unsustainable and it's uh, bad for um, the environment. And so it's a model that a bunch of cities are starting to pick up, including um, a lot of places in Europe and I think Philadelphia and Portland are looking at it as well. And it's sort of this closed loop um, program where you measure the performance of the market and economy based on the extent to which it people's needs are met. And so when I, part of me is, is cynical and thinks that there's no hope. Part of me thought that when cannabis became legalized, people would get this epiphany and want to create a systems that made the world a better place. And, and that obviously didn't happen. So I'm I'm worried that that might not happen with psychedelics. I'm worried pharmaceuticals are just going to co-opt it. But then I, I have some more hope that as everybody sort of learns more about uh, these substances and it becomes more normalized, it can, you know, turn into, uh, you know, various levels of access and different uh, means of, of production and sale, both from like closed loop communities to larger corporations and done through, you know, where you have your prescriptions, you have your nutraceuticals, you have your consumable food, but also um, creating these systems and these industries and supply chains with, um, you know, farming techniques in mind, with water management, with weight, plastic packaging, um, you know, different sort of uh, transportation, things like that. These sort of the the intersectionality of um, these these substances and these products and what they can do and what their intentions are for uh, the society and the greater purpose and you know a lot of these have to do with mental health and mental health is uh, seriously lacking in this country right now so you know creating some sort of program where you have companies that are plugged in with hospitals and you create like these broad mental health programs through businesses large 
maybe pharmaceutical companies that actually know how to distribute and how to um, and hospitals that can provide these uh, benefits and it can be funded through these industries. Um, and so those are that could sort of be my hope of just sort of reimagining what what success in an economy looks like and how it can all uh, fit together and what the intent is and how it can plug in to make the world a better place through all means. So I I think that's great. And you know, some examples of that, you know, I know for a number of years, Berkeley Patients Program, and you know, I worked there a lifetime ago. Um, and, you know, there was always a compassion program, free or at cost medicine for you know, cannabis products for qualifying individuals. And that was one of the things that made me kind of proud to work there was that this program was very important. And the difference it made in those people's lives, like, you know, it was really, you, you could kind of feel it and see it in a very subjective way, I guess. Um, but, you know, Sarah, I, I've, I've got a you know, wonder where you're at this interesting intersection of, you know, research. And, you know, I'm sure nothing would be better than having some company fund a bunch of research that you could just kind of go crazy studying and developing things. Do you think that some of the changes proposed in this article would facilitate some of the work you want to do? Or is there just this kind of opens up more questions of whether or not it's feasible, or what the impact would be. Um, but but please so feel free to, to ignore that and share your thoughts about the article. Yeah, no, I, you know, um, I definitely think, and I, and I know that I've said this many times on this show is, you know, how, how do you make it important to these big companies to have supporting research? Um, you know, there's the, the hurdle of with cannabis, you know, it's not even legal yet for me to do research on a corporation's product. So that part needs to go away, but the company has to be incentivized to value research. They have to want to know if their products are safe and effective. So I think, you know, having that in place, uh, promoting that somehow, you know, I sort of was hoping with like with CBD, that companies that didn't care about that would suffer from that on their own. And there would be this sort of Darwinian survival of the fittest and the companies that invested in figuring out whether their products were safe and effective, you know, would, would survive in this market. But, you know, it's, it's so challenging with products like CBD and now with the emerging psychedelics, when there's so much popular demand in the absence of a desire for the research, um, it's tough. So, you know, how can you make people do things the right way or do things for the right reasons? And I thought about that and I came to legislation. And then that made me sad that that was the answer that I came up with. I don't know why that made me <laughs> sad. But, but yeah, I think, you know, putting in regulations where companies have to have their, pro, you know, part of their proceeds going to R&D. And again, it, go, it loops back to the FDA you know, what's the incentive for Pfizer to make a safe and effective product? They have to, or else it's not going to get approved. So can we have a similar kind of thing, whether or not you're, it's FDA approval? Can there be some component of it where research and development um, is necessary to sort of, you know, force some folks in that direction? Well, you know, to your point, uh, uh, Sarah, 
I think you bring up a good point. It's like people always talk about, oh, pure capitalism is great, but we don't really have pure capitalism in this country. There, there are incentives. There's government aid. Like I think about the railroads. Those weren't built by like the best people to build railroads. Those are built by companies that got government contracts. I mean, gosh, you know, the, we're like farmers paid not to grow corn so it doesn't like upset the economy. I wish I could get paid. To, I'm already not growing corn. If I could get paid to do that, I mean, it would be great. Um, but Sabrina, I want to, you know, since this is really your domain um, and like you're you're living this every day, I wanted to kind of get your response to some of the things Sarah said and, and just a chance to round out this article before we go on to the next one. Yeah, well, just I wanted to sort of look at this in, in a real world uh, context with a hemp bill that's been introduced in California. And I don't know if anybody's familiar with it, but it is, uh, you know, it's basically a cannabinoid harvesting bill. A hemp-derived cannabinoid harvesting bill is what I'm manufacturing, and um, you know the difference of, of a third of a percent of a single cannabinoid determines like everything about it, like its quality control, its environment. Um, but there's no incentives for environmental sustainability. There's no um, discussion of social equity, or uh, which also is even worse for hemp because you're not even allowed to be to own a hemp business if you have a drug conviction on your record. Um, and so I, you know, I see this hemp bill as an amazing opportunity to actually create a sort of an industry and a market of with this vision in mind of what we want to see of a, a an industry that actually has a positive impact on society and isn't just sort of doing the business as usual, endless growth. And with that endless growth is endless waste and endless um you know, environmental impact and everything that happens with corporate America that we can fix by reimagining what this can look like. And this hemp bill lacks all of those, but has the potential to be included, hopefully, throughout this process. Um, but yeah, it's just something to keep an eye on. Yeah. I mean, I, we can only imagine if people had thought out, like, what would be the impact of selling 300 million vape cartridges in a year? And um, are they just going to go in a pile like off the coast of New Jersey till they decompose? Like, wh what's our plan for dealing with this waste we're, we're creating? Um, it's a great point. And, you know, Sabrina, I'm so glad you mentioned the, the hemp bill in California because, you know, in New York, you know, where I live, uh, they are also passing sort of their own cannabidiol hemp regulations. And this article, our next article from Scientific American, a guest blog by Doria Reeser, on natural versus synthetic chemicals is a gray matter. Uh, this was an issue that came up in the hemp regs. Well, it was an issue for me because I submitted commentary in my natural style. Uh, but they said that no synthetic uh, terpenes were allowed in formulations. And I thought, well, is that what they really mean? Um, and so I found this article, which really kind of sets it out because there is no difference between limonene if it's from you know, orange peels or cannabis or synthesized. You can't, there's no test, you know, there's no smell test as it were to, you know, suss out which is which and where it came from. So maybe the intent uh, of the law in these sorts of regs is to, I mean, you know, not found in nature. But, you know, getting back to this article, you know, there's this idea out there that nature cannot harm us. You know, um, people, you know, People think about like HIV and the immune system, right? That's that's 
that comes from the natural world. Uh, tuberculosis, its effects on the lung, that comes from the natural world. Donald Trump on the liberal mind, it's just poison. And that comes from the natural world too. Um, so, so there's so many, um, you know, not everything and everything that comes from nature is healthier us than a synthetic product and, and unfortunately this is not like a sun in the moon kind of night and dark kind of like discussion there's a lot of i think gray area with the natural and synthetic um you know but i may want to go to sarah with this and maybe you can just give us a little gut check a little reality check one of the most common criticisms that i face like since some of my early work was oh you use synthetic cbd for your research that's going to be totally different. And then you hear these things where people talk about CBD isolated from hemp is more effective than CBD purified from cannabis and, you know, things like that. So, um, you know, could you maybe like speak to that when people say that there is no difference between a synthetic and natural product or, you know, they're just as toxic or just as safe, <laughs> maybe help our lister out a little bit with this, this discussion that it floats around the industry. Yeah, this is one of my favorite topics, as I guess you've already <laughs> figured out. Um, you know, and as a pharmacologist and a professor of pharmacology, you know, so many of my lectures when we talk about the different neurotransmitter systems are, here's a list of natural toxins that act through this receptor or that receptor. Uh, and, you know, the article pointed that out really well. Um, you know, and the other thing, as you mentioned, Jehan, is this myth that, um, you know, when when it's synthesized in a laboratory, it somehow becomes magically different from the chemical uh, that is pulled from the plant. So, I, you know, one of my favorite quotes from this article is, the biological activity of a chemical is a function of its structure rather than its origin. And I think that's so nicely put. Um, you know, that it, it is what it is. Again, and I, you know, I failed chemistry in college, so I don't want to speak too much on that topic. But, you know, you know, like you said, it's it's the structure, no matter where it came from. People ask me all the time, you know, is the, the CBD from hemp is better from than the CBD from cannabis. I've tested lab synthesized CBD in my laboratory. The mice don't care where I get the CBD from. It still alleviates their neuropathic pain. Um, so yeah, th I mean, that's just a consistent, irritating thing that I hear bandied about. You know, uh, CBD isn't miraculous because it comes from a plant. It's miraculous for 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 other uh, reasons. So I think that that's really important. Um, and, you know, and I don't know if, if some people promote this because they're afraid of people focusing on the individual chemicals rather than the plant. And what people really mean is that CBD is better when it's with the plant. You know, that's a completely different conversation. And again, that's, that's probably not nature's awesome, but, you know, nature has created something that may you know, be smarter than, than focusing on on one chemical versus another. So, you know, it's it's surprising to me that articles like this still need to be written and read, but apparently it's something that we, you know, continue uh, to need to talk about. Yeah, um, I think it is because, you know, the more examples we can gather about the differences, uh, um, the better. And, and sometimes when people hear 
folks like me and you, Sarah, saying it over and over again. There is no biological, chemical, or pharmacological difference. It's just, it just goes right through their, it just passes through them like a neutrino. So um, when other people say it, like an authority in the space, like Scientific American, maybe, maybe they'll listen. Um, Nigga, you know, you've been, you've been a little quiet there. I'm sure uh, you're pondering this article. Why don't you share some of your thoughts? Well, I, uh, I had a couple quick ones. One is that, uh, Sarah, I have trouble believing that you failed <laughs> college chemistry. Yeah, I was like, eh, just from just from knowing you so far, it's like I have trouble actually believing that. But um, anyways, uh, the other thing that I have to say about this is also chemically based. So uh, some listeners may already know about my history. So I did my PhD in organic chemistry. And this was before I got into cannabis professionally. And I would still even then I would say to people, but what does it look like on the NMR? And for listeners who are unfamiliar, there's like two really amazing tools we have as chemists and, and scientists. So NMR characterizes the actual atoms and the electron spin in these molecules. It's it's um you can't fake it. You can't um I, I'm trying to think how to even explain like what an amazing like benchmark to understand like what molecules actually are that nmr is so anyways go google it send me an email let's talk about it so the other is uh mass spectrometry so this tells us uh once again what is it on a like how many of these atoms are here and you can do like these equations or these math problems to figure out like how they're oriented once again it's telling you what is it and that's a question i ask all the time because we see in cannabis we're just rife with brands and branding. And my favorite question for people is, what is it? And what I mean by that is if I toss it on the NMR, like what molecules are in it? If I run it on a mass spec, what molecules are in it? And um, so when I read this article, it, it comes back to that. Well, if the NMR says it's the same and the mass spec says it's the same, uh, if Sarah's rats say it's the same, uh, then I don't have any issue with it. And I would challenge people who do uh, to have that conversation with a trained chemist or a trained scientist or a trained NMR technician and try to debate them. And I don't think you're going to do very well. So, All right. Um, you know, thank you, Diggum. I, I thought it was a really good point. And, um, you know, I feel confident in your answer because of your background in chemistry. And, um, you know, I've I've done some NMR stuff too. It's a great way to you know see purity. Some people aren't so good at it. Um, oh, you know, legend kind of hard to read. Yeah, legend legend has it. Uh, I heard from a very reliable source from someone who was there that when the grad student presented the uh, you know the data, put it together for the NMR of the structure of THC at the big unveiling of THC structure, that the NMR data wasn't correct. <laughs> so, you know, that was a a moment when. The big cheese in Israel, so, you know, slammed down his pencil and was like, darn grad students. Uh, but, um, you know, so even experts sometimes, you know, they got, you got to like really be pay attention uh, to the data. But, but Sabrina, I want to uh, go to you, you know, we obviously the natural parallel to this, I think, is like cannabis products and extracts and flavored products and that whole shebang. But I want to get a sense from you. What Was there something that jumped out at you from this article or like spoke to you that you were like, this is something I totally agree with, totally don't agree with, something I think about all the time, made me think new thoughts I'd never thought before? 
Um, yeah, no, it, it sort of gave me flashbacks to a, a city council uh, debate that went down last year over whether or not to ban uh, cannabis products with uh, flavors. And then it turned into banning cannabis products with artificial flavors or synthetic, which I did not realize was exactly the same thing. Right. That's how that was my takeaway from the article, at least. <laughs> um, and so as a layman who did almost fail chemistry in high school and took biology 101 twice in college, um, I have always struggled with this side of cannabis. I'm more of sort of the policy person and the learning of this. I thought this was an excellent breakdown. And I have to give a shout out to ATN Fontan for uh giving me sort of this 101 baseline education on what exactly terpenes are and, and all the way down to the, the chemical breakdown. And so what I had to do once I understood that from ETN was to disseminate it into a, 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 a layman's memo for our city council members. So it took me a while and I, you know, I would say uh, have a little empathy for, for those of us not in the, the chemical world like this is I'm still wrapping my head around this and this is you know we've been doing talking about this for since the vape crisis of uh, two years ago year and a half whenever that was um and so you know it really what I keep thinking about on this and what everybody told me when I was learned before was you know they're chemically the same everything is chemically the same so if you get a terpene from a lemon or a terpene from from a cannabis with the lemon terpenes, they're the same thing as is my general understanding. And so when you're, you're, you can't, and there's no way to determine which is which. So when you're making policy, you can't, they were, you, they were trying to ban that, but then there was no mechanism to say, well, how exactly did you get it? Unless, you know, you're not only tracing the actual plant, but you're also tracing the chemicals in the plant and where they're going in those derivatives, which I guess might be technically possible, but feasible. I, you know, I just don't think that the government and, and industry can really make that work. Um, but I just keep thinking about how these are these are broken down into one single foundational component, but everything is affected by additional factors. And you know, when you're adding, you say one, just one terpene, and how is that, and what is the the health effect of that? But you're never just injecting or consuming or, or however one single terpene um, for most of these products, I don't wanna say for everything because there's obviously medicine occurring, but um, there's so many combinations it becomes a little bit overwhelming to think about of like how you're ingesting this, what else is in what you're ingesting with these terpenes, um, you know, what are the, just everything that has to do with that. And then it just sort of becomes really overwhelming for me to think about, but, um, you know, and then also, again, back to the branding and the advertising, you know, they talk about organic and what's organic and, um, you know, what does that really mean? It contains carbon, technically. Um, and, <laughs> but, you know, luckily, they're they're sort of making. Uh, um, that was a great chemistry joke, Sabrina. Well done. <laughs> Thanks. A, a science major in college told me that and it's stuck with me forever. So. <laughs> but I, I think you're I think, you know. One of the best, one of my favorite points you're making that I'm hearing is that, you know, this is already, uh, it's, 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 it is a confusing space because it is a bit of a paradigm shift in a way of thinking because of the marketing and branding that's out there. 
And you definitely want to control source and provenance, but we also have to be careful that while we may want everything to come from one source, just use what's on the cannabis plant. Don't introduce, but we have no mechanism for assessing those things, like where it came from, no, no mechanism to enforce that regulation. How could a company possibly show compliance? Um, and, and we're running a little short of time, so I'm gonna move to David to get the last word in. Uh, speaking of compliance, our, our good manufacturing practices compliance officer is um, gonna share us his thoughts on, I'm sure this comes up a lot with clients um, and, you know, no. Yeah, I mean, so let's just, let's take a quick time warp back to 1902 and the Pure Food and Drug Act, right? Which eventually led to the ultimate formation of the FDA today. And the the poison, uh, what was it called? The, um, was it like the poison team or the poison group that, you know, they did research um, back around 1900 with like borax and sodium um, benzoate because we were putting that on our meats. Right. Anybody look at the jungle? Great read by Upton Sinclair from right around that era, I believe, 1906. And that—that's essentially what they were looking at was these compounds and trying to understand at a basic fundamental level: are they safe or are they not safe? And it comes back to the chemical compounds or the structure, not the where it came from. Right. And I think that's really important. And, and the takeaway to bring it fast forward to today and cannabis and regulations and you know as sabrina pointed out right this is not a very simple concept to wrap your head around even if you've gone to college right even if you've taken chemistry once or twice i i got a c in my animal bio class and it's because i only showed up three times i will self-declare that not sure how i survived um you know i hated chemistry but i i spent time working in a chemistry lab for about 10 years so here i am right and the the takeaway is it's not about it's it's bigger than that and it's a but it's also fundamental you have to understand what are your inputs right is it plant-based is it derived what's your supplier that's that's supplying it to you what's your process that these inputs go into what are the what are the potential risks and unintended consequences what are the side reactions etc and then what are your outputs and what are you trying to output evaluate every step in the process with every handoff whether it's a person handoff our process, process handoff is where things can go awry and evaluate that and understand what your outputs are and then be able to test, validate and ongoing monitor and verify it. And that's the approach we need to take. It's otherwise we're going to get stuck in this. Well, what about this chemical? What about this source? Like it's just a, it's 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 impossible to handle, especially when you've got a thousand businesses that all want the flexibility and innovation to do it their own way. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and the, the Poison Squad was a real thing. And there's some funny literature out there about them too, to help, you know, they ate moldy cantaloupe, so you don't have to. Um, but that's all the time we have for our popular news articles and the popular literature. We're gonna take a short break with a message, maybe from a sponsor. If you're enjoying these tunes during the break, be sure to check out Guru Music, a groovy custom music house and music library in the Bay Area, matching your digital needs with real musicians. That's G-O-O-R-O-O Music. And we're back. 
with Rapid Fire Science, where we go around providing brief commentary and discussion about the following scientific articles. Our first article is entitled, So You Think You Can Cook Pot? Evaluating the Knowledge of Food Safety and Edible Safety Between Users and Non-Users of Cannabis Edibles in British Columbia, published in a public health journal from British Columbia. I'm so, Nigam, I really thought this was kind of a fun title for an article, and it had some fun stuff in there. They surveyed people, and uh, not surprisingly, they found that non-users of cannabis edibles are more at risk of health hazards related to the ingestion of products due to like lower knowledge in the subject matter and eagerness to experience cannabis products after their legalization. Um, you know, the, the article features things like a table about THC content where like you have here's from one to two milligrams, what to expect, as well as 50 to 100 milligrams, which I got to say under the 100 milligram dose, um, highly likely to impair coordination and alter perception gave me a little bit of a chuckle. Um, but Liam, I'd like to get your kind of response to this um, kind of, for me, a bit of an interesting article and something, you know, I think it's a good topic for the industry in general to see that, you know, you have these education efforts. Some companies do a really good job of providing education materials to people, but it's really those people that don't have experience, those naive cannabis users who are still at a risk. And, and we don't know if certain efforts are even having a positive impact on, on protecting them from, let's say, a negative interaction <laughs> with a cannabis product. So what... What did you find surprising about this article? What would you like to share? Well, uh, I, I also did like this. I think that edibles are this interesting segment because they have so much potential uh, for in many categories, for therapeutic use, for folks who don't want to smoke. Um, and a lot of people don't have an aversion to cannabis. They have an aversion to smoking. Um there's also so many nuances, like you said, like the dosing, the consistency, the, um, and I, I could go on and on and on. I know we're a little short on HLI time at the moment. So um, I, I did like, uh, Jehan, you were pointing out prior this uh, table that they had in here that I think does like a pretty decent job of like sorting out these dosing ranges and what you, you know, a person might expect and, and who is it for. I think that really what I'm what I'm getting out of this is that the to really realize the benefit for the consumer, the patient for edibles, there is a little more education to do, a little more understanding uh, to to come in the industry. And w one other way to put that, or one reason behind that, is because, for example, like smoking or vaping cannabis, it's pretty easy to understand. The feedback loop is pretty rapid. You're going to know how you're feeling in a matter of minutes. Um, versus this, there's just there's so much nuance. How much did you eat that day? Was the dosing even even in the product you have? What is your uh, tolerance? Um, what is, is it full spectrum? Is it just uh, a THC or CBD isolate? And I once again, I could go on and on and on. So anyways, I, I thought it did a, a good job um, of summarizing some uh, important topics. And I would definitely encourage readers to check this out. Yeah, and, and, and listener, if you are interested in this article, it is in the show notes for the podcast. So just keep tapping on things to read the description. You know, one thing I thought was really kind of alarming from the articles, they talked about previous cannabis 
uh, knowledge surveys. Um, and, you know, 15 to 34 years old seems to be the highest percentage of a kind of like new cannabis users, especially with legalization, which isn't surprising because that's the, you know, the point of having safe access is people to go and experience this stuff. Um, but it showed that Canadians aged 19 to 29 years old, which is right in that demographic, have a low food safety knowledge, and only 38% of respondents correctly identified the safe final cooking temperature of chicken. Um, so, you know, if they're interested in like cannabis cookery and, you know, there's like, you know, they don't know how to navigate cooking a chicken, you know, it does give me some pause to wonder if there needs to be maybe more education, like, hey, you're about to go to college. Let me tell you the safe way to handle dairy and poultry. Um, it might come in. Um, but, you know, uh, Sabrina, you know, uh, you know, California edibles have been a big part of the last year of sales. And so, you know, if you had a reaction to some of this stuff in this article or just your initial impression, um, you know, I'd like to get a sense of that. Well, the first thing that came to mind was sort of the, the difference between the you know, making it at home versus getting a, a product that's made from a scaled industrial place that's better able to control and, and test and, and all of that. And so, you know, I've had my own personal experience of, of trying to make cannabis at home. And the first question is the extraction and, you know, how much are you, what's the temperature? Like you mentioned, all of these sort of variables um, and, and that always has an effect, but then how do you put it in? How do you even know how much you've extracted when you make your own butter? You know, I can't go test it. Um, and then how do you make sure that it's homogenized across the entire edible? I, I had no idea the first time I made edibles that, um, the butter is at least for me more psychoactive than the edible was. Um, and which was really surprising, but a very intense experience. And so I think the low food safety knowledge and the low process knowledge is um, the key component to making sure that people understand like the importance of food safety, but just in general, I mean, not just cannabis, but all kinds of food. And then you add the layer of cannabis and then how, you know, fatty foods has a different impact on edibles than, um, you know, an empty stomach. And, and if you add alcohol, um, there's so many components, but the general, you know, I guess consumer takeaway is always start low, go slow. And yeah. Yeah. That, that's, I think that is some good advice. And I think their table kind of gives the, at least gave, gave me the kind of the impression that that's the direction they were going. You know, David, I want to give you a quick chance um, to do an easy bake here and just, um, you know, provide some brief commentary before we move on to the next article. Yeah. So, you know, I think one thing I, I thought about when reading this article is, um, can I make brownies in my sleep? I, I have like one of the biggest sweet tooths. I, I know self-proclaimed and friends will validate that. Um, you know, I can follow the instructions on the box. And even then, I think we can all talk about the times where they've come out a little sloppy or a little harder, a little softer. And, um, and then ask me to, you know, give me a test on the temperature and the time, and I'd probably fail. And I make those things like once a month. Um, so how can we expect somebody, the average consumer, to really understand an amateur level how to make edibles? Like this is not very simple and you need really good instructions. And I think companies in Canada specifically have done a really good job at that. I know I've seen, I'm trying to remember whether it was the New Brunswick um, Commission or whether it was Health Canada that put out these great one-pagers that you get at the retail stores about the go low, you know, start slow and go low um, and, you know, the, the dosing. Um, I think that's great. We need that more education. And 
I can only imagine how much worse off those results would have been without that information. So um, it's just, it's a complicated topic. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I think those are good points. And listener, again, check out this article. Uh, it's a good read, especially if you're interested in edibles at all. So we're going to move on to our next article, which was one that was really cool, um, published in Immunology Letters entitled Psychedelics as a Novel Approach to Treating Autoimmune Conditions. And you know, you, you might be wondering, like, what what's the connection between an autoimmune disorder? I struggled with it too, like inflammatory pathways, immune modulation, affecting the microbiome and the gut. Like this is such an interesting way, um, you know, something interesting that, that psychedelics can do. So Sarah, you know, you're our, our basic research expert here. You've definitely studied, you know, things related to inflama inflammation and, and like things like neuropathic pain and chronic stress. Um, tell us about this article and your thoughts on it. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the biggest trends in neuroscience over the past maybe five to 10 years now has been understanding interactions between the brain and the immune system. And some incredible discoveries have been made recently. So what would have sounded really preposterous five or 10 years ago um, really is, you know, starts to make sense now when we really no longer you know, separate these types of things like neurons in the brain control our mood and immune cells in the blood regulate inflammation and immune response. And so we're learning that there's an enormous amount of crosstalk. It helps to explain certain comorbidities, pain and depression, or um, childhood trauma and the emergence of autoimmune disorders. So it's, it's really exciting. And then it made me sad that I wasn't the person that thought of this and wrote this article. Uh, <laughs> but then it made me happy to think, well, maybe I'm one of the earliest people to read this article, thanks to you guys. And I can write my next grant before other people get on the same bandwagon. So if you're listening, don't copy my ideas. Uh, but I think um, I think it's 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 not surprising when you start to look at it in the context of other emerging research, looking at how things that we thought were really specific to the brain and behavior can interact with immune function and vice versa. So I and and again, it's like the past few episodes I've said, you know, the one difference between cannabis and the psychedelics is that cannabinoids have this, you know, larger application to other things, whereas psychedelics are really focused on mood and maybe specifically a treatment for mood disorders. And, and I'm, I'm glad to find out that I was probably incorrect with that. So I'm really excited uh, to think about, you know, where research in this area will take us. Yeah, one of the, I, I love that response. And one of the things, Sarah, that really, you know, kind of drove it home for me is, and, and, do you think it's accurate to say that the psychedelics might be helping on, on two fronts? One, there might be a pharmacological response, hitting a receptor, certain things are going up and down in, in the body, you know, certain signaling things, but also maybe train, changing that, how they said, the maladaptive chronic stress response. So whether it's something you're engaging in or, you know, being really stressed out all the time. So it's, it's, it kind of seems like there's, it's a two kind of, like it's converging on one thing through two different pathways. One is like your mental approach maybe to things. And the other is this actual 
pharmacological effect it's having on tissue. Would you say that that's, you know, is that, is that a huge leap for a grasshopper to make? Or do you think that that's, that's a little reasonable? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think, I think the, the fact of the matter is those two things aren't different at all. And what we have to get used to is the fact that our mental state is our pharmacology and our physiology. Um, and so when you are feeling the stress of something, it's what your body's doing inside. It's all the chemicals that it's releasing. And so, you know, something, you know, when my mood is affected, it's because my chemicals are acting differently inside my body. So, you know, when a, when a drug is, is altering that it is altering the physiology and pharmacology of the body and it's altering how we feel. Right. And so this extra mysterious layer is that we have a psychedelic experience from these drugs. And as I've said before, you know, what is that component and, and is that part of it something or is it sort of epiphenomenal to just whatever pharmacological is going on in the brain and resetting things and, and helping us out, which, you know, I think is super exciting to think about, but I, I think it, it helps us to, to merge these two concepts of my mind is doing this thing and my body is doing that thing. Absolutely. And I've always wanted yeah. to use epiphenomenal in, in some sort of, uh, capacity where people won't laugh at me. You guys are already laughing at me. I can see it. Well, no, it's it's uh, it's not that. Um, I think you know these the, this paper is having a placebo effect on me. Um, but I was looking at Figure Two, and it just shows you the diversity of products in this space, right? It has the ayahuasca vine, the peyote cacti, I believe. It has you know magic mushrooms, and then a huge fat toad. Um, so. Sarah, please include toad venom in an arm of your study when you're applying. Cause I mean, people are injecting that like into their muscle tissue and, and things like this. And we, I mean, we seem to be doing okay. Um, but you know, maybe, you know, I like to see what happens to non-celebrities. They take these products. Uh, <laughs> yes, I would. And please film that. I will not forgive you if you do not video that and put it on YouTube. But and this is uh, also a perfect time for our disclaimer that we do not endorse any practice or product. We're merely discussing it and everyone should consult yep. their physician before doing any of this. Before licking a toad, please consult with your general uh, practitioner. Um, <laughs> We're, we're laughing but we mean it so we really mean it it's it's ridiculous that you'd have to say that but you never know um sabrina before we go to the game i just want to give you a quick chance to comment you know you are in the people's republic of berkeley i assume it's a matter of hours or days before you can get a mushroom psilocybin extract in a gut you know biotic smoothie or something like that but you know share, share with us some of your thoughts about about the article real quick well, maybe on the campus, but I don't know about uh, in the city, <laughs> not yet. But this this article, it just kind of it made me really think this whole way of um, how Western medicine looks at uh, physical health and mental health is almost being mutually exclusive of each other and kind of how we really need to think about how there's more of a, of course, it is in my layman's terms, an interconnection. And it kind of, you know, hearing you guys talk about this reminded me of uh Patch Adams and the, the story of Patch Adams and how 
his whole thing was he took sick people and gave them an environment that just made them happy and excited. And, and it's I, they were starting to do research to show that that actually helped with the healing of the ailments that they had. And so psychedelics would sort of be a natural next step to what that particular concept is of, you know, everything is mental. You know, when you have an itch or pain or anything, it's all actually in your brain. You're not this, I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong. I don't want to give incorrect information, but, um, you know, mental health is physical health. And they, like you said, they have this sort of interconnection and, and creating that, that um, space when you're happy helps with healing because it generates those, those chemicals that calm parts of in, inflammation in, in the brain that I guess calms different parts in the body. I have a seizure disorder that's triggered by, um, or has been in the past triggered by uh, anxiety and, and severe anxiety and severe stress. Um, but when I, you know, consume cannabis, manage my um, anxiety and stress, then the, the physical manifestation of that anxiety, which is a seizure, doesn't happen. So I, I love this study. Um, I love that this is something that uh, people are pursuing. And I, I uh, Sarah, I'm happy to be a, um, a volunteer for any research you might need to do. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for that, uh, that fun discussion about two really interesting articles recently out in the space. So we'll take a short break and we'll come back with a new game that we're going to beta test live on the show, listeners. So stick around and we'll be right back. At Marku and Aurora, we understand that navigating the investment landscape in cannabis and psychedelics is complex. We utilize our in-house expertise in science to support investors and innovators. Reach out to us to start a conversation about how we can help guide your investment decisions and prepare your next venture for success. All right, welcome back, listener, to today's game. And today our group will be playing for the grand prize of helping to expand scientific thought. And today's game is Guess That Ethical Quandary. So this is a game where we examine ethical dilemmas in business, science, and beyond. So here's how it works. The moderator, which is me, will read or share a case report. Um, and for example, uh, you know, it might be from a top 10 list of ethical dilemmas facing science or business or something I made up or something I experienced. But today, I'm going to go with a real one that happened to me many years ago. So listener, if you're trying to follow along, after the group is presented with the case report, the group will then discuss and try and identify the ethical quandary or ethical dilemma. Is it an issue of responsibility? Is it a, a professional issue related to honesty? Is it a bias? Is it pseudoscience? What is it? And, and just in case you're wondering, well, what, what is ethics? What's the definition of ethical? It's just something in accordance with principles of conduct that are considered correct, like those of a profession or group. Um, so with that, we're just going to begin simply, and I'm going to read you this. And this is a uh, case report number one, and it is titled, Something Stinks at This Law Office. So many years ago, I had a successful blog that covered topics related to the cannabis field. 
One day while looking for hyperlinks to insert into an article, I came across a law office that offered consulting services to the cannabis industry. And on their research page, lo and behold, the only resource item for clients was my content and my PowerPoints taken directly uh, word for word uh, about terpenes, uh, except any reference to me. They basically copy pasted it into their webpage. And you know, this law firm will refer to it as the law offices of, of Mr. John Doe. So I contacted Mr. Doe and sent emails outlining the issue uh, and got no response. Uh, he stated he was not aware of any wrongdoing and that everything on his website was his work. In response, I sent another email side by side comparing Mr. Doe's resources on terpenes to my website and informational materials. Um, and you know, after a few weeks of no reply, I decided to send a follow-up and say, you know, I'm going to give out a legal ethics complaint against you. He capitulated and changed the website, adding in very tiny grayed out print that the source of this material was indeed from me. So the law offices of John Doe and Associates, according to the moderator, which is me, probably violated uh, some sort of ethical issue. In other words, are you ready to guess that ethical quandary? A law office takes a student's work from the student's presentation or website and boasts it as their own. Did the law office violate ethics by sniffing around my website or am I making a stink about it? I'm going to go to you guys. And, you know, it's some of like, for example, we could say this is an issue of responsibility for the law firm to make sure that, you know, everything is accurate and, and attributed, or maybe there's something else going on here. So I'm just going to open it up. I have a, I have a question. I'm just going to... Mm -hmm just swing hard on this first one is uh copyright infringement or maybe uh early on illiteracy a um ethical quandary <laughs> those are the two that i kind of listed well, here even if i don't even if i can't read and i just start <laughs> photocopying a book and then stapling it i'm like john steinbeck didn't write this <laughs> you know yeah that's it might have to do, yeah, I think you're, you're, what you're hitting is it, it might have to do with someone's rights to something they created. Yeah, yeah. I think the I, I think I'm going to go with copyright infringement for my first foray. So, yeah, so respecting, that would be under the respect ethical dilemma, right? We respect the property rights of others. Um, you know, Sarah, Sabrina, is there perhaps something else going on here, right? Definitely, I would say. That's 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 half of the main answer I was looking for. I'd say it's almost it's I mean theft. They're they're you know writing on their their website where they're making money and and using their information to get clients and then not attributing that to you, but they're using your words so that they can make money and they can drive more traffic. Yeah, exactly, Sabrina. So what I'm hearing is that um, this is a uh, falls under. The ethics of respect and honesty, not necessarily maybe responsibility or bias or pseudoscience and respect in the terms of the property rights of others, people's content, and also not engaging in dishonest behavior with the intention of personal gain at the expense of someone else. So it sounds like you guys are saying this is an ethical quandary dealing with two things, respect and honesty. Is that correct? I would what if what that. if I was to tell you you were completely wrong? Would you believe me? <laughs> <laughs> that I'd be in my own ethical quandary. But that is indeed correct. This is our 
this is indeed an ethical quandary relating to respect and honesty. And so, you know, uh, always attribute content because you never know uh, whose toes you might be stepping on. So uh, we always attribute uh, stuff, uh, especially in the show notes where we get it from. So um, we're trying to follow and play this game in the real world as well. So uh, thank you, listener, for bearing with us as we prototype, tested, guess that, guess that ethical quandary. Um, we're going to try and bring you more, maybe better case reports in the future. This was a prototype beta test. We're interested to get your feedback. Well, that's our show. Thanks for clicking, tapping, swiping, or however you are hearing this. We appreciate it. Thank you to our trusty audio engineer. The show is edited and mixed by Joe Leonardo. Thank you, Joe. And be sure to check out all the custom album artwork for each episode uh, made by Selena Lee and her friends. Um, Check it out. She also has a website where she does an amazing uh, set of watermelon paintings and pictures uh, that both Nigam and I are thinking of having framed and hanging up in our future HLI office. All right. Thank you, everyone. And uh, we'll be in touch. (laughs) 